0: Good afternoon. Welcome to Duke Chapel's Bridge Panel series, uh, in which we aim to bridge people from various walks of life to discuss um, issues of shared concern. And as many of you know, which is why you are here, today's topic is what to say when someone is dying a very important uh, topic for any of us. And um, before I introduce our panelists, just to one note that there are two, at least two plates. They are offering plates, but we're not asking for your money. <laughs> one uh, up front and another, I think somewhere in the back where you can during any time during this panel Discussion. Write your question that you may have on a piece of paper, and that we can utilize during our Q and A time. So this topic, what to say when someone is dying, is relevant um, because if we are brutally honest, all of us are dying right now, second by second, dying even while we are living, regardless of age, race class, gender, or NCAA tournament bracket picks. (laughs) Death is a common denominator and equal opportunity endeavor. It, as a folk spiritual says, ain't nothing but a robber. And to have this conversation in Duke Chapel is highly appropriate because it brings this topic to the center of Duke's campus. It is a conversation that is critical to life and death. And what better place to have this conversation than in a building that is cruciform, in a shape of a cross, a historical tool of execution and death. And during the Christian liturgical season of Lent as we approach Holy Week and Good Friday Furthermore, as many of you probably know, some of the Duke family rests in our side chapel, Memorial Chapel, and other prominent Duke University figures are laid to rest in the crypt. So when you walk into Duke Chapel, in many ways you are walking into a domain of death and dying. This is not to say that those who gather here for worship throughout the week are dead or are the frozen chosen, but it is to acknowledge the ways in which a church, a university chapel, is a spiritual hospital for the sick. As a Christian scholar and pastor, the church and any religious community should be a space for open and honest discussion about death and dying. We don't need to rely on the internet with its websites such as www.deathclock.com, that will predict when you will die. We should be able to have that heart-to-heart conversation about our mortality together as we bury loved ones and strangers, visit the sick in hospitals or nursing homes, care for those who have cancer, serve as a balm for family and friends of those who are dying, the young and old who find themselves in a valley of dry bones. There may even be those in our presence today who can say like poet Emily Dickinson, I felt a funeral in my brain. Death is a sobering reminder of life. And as we talk about death, the day before my own birth, I am delighted to have these wise very wise colleagues to help us have a deeper understanding of what to say when someone is dying so without further ado let me introduce our distinguished panelists from duke all the way to the far left is dr Raymond Barfield, who is Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Christian Philosophy at the School of Medicine and the Divinity School. Next to him, we have Ms. Jennifer Gentry, Nurse Practitioner with Duke Palliative Care and the School of Nursing. Then we have Dr. Carla Holloway, James B. Duke Professor of English Law and of African American Studies. And then next to her, closest to me, is the Reverend Dr. Richard Lisher, James T. and Alice mead Clulland, professor of preaching at Duke Divinity School. Can we welcome our panelists today? You should know that I, in preparing for this panel, posed two questions to the panelists to reflect on. Um, for this day, this afternoon, and what I'd like to do as we begin is to really pose the first question and have them share some remarks in relation to it, and then we will see where it goes. So that first question is, and in no particular order, through the lens of your profession, what do you see, what do you say when someone is dying? Who would like to be first?
1: (laughs) I guess I will go first as the the nurse here. Um, When I think about talking with a dying person, um, the words are important. Um, The stories are even more important, but sometimes it's about what we don't say. It's about our presence, and I think as a nurse, um, that is one of the most valued Tools and skills that we possess as being present um, and doing listening in the very athletic sense. Um, I think back on the very long and rich history that nursing has in caring for dying persons all the way back to um, our famous colleague Florence Nightingale in the Crimean War to Clara Barton in the Civil War. And though they did not possess The technologies that we currently have at our disposal, they did possess important skills in talking to and being with dying persons. Uh, The most important thing was in caring and sitting next to the bedside and listening to the stories, making sure that that legacy was returned to their family um, in writing letters and and other things like that. I think about in modern times that the founder of our current modern hospice movement, we really credit to a nurse. Um, And the hospice movement in this country also is credited to a nurse and how they very much valued um, thinking about the total person, not just the physical parts, but the spiritual parts and the social parts of that and how that we address all of those needs in a holistic perspective. Um, I think... I remember a time, and I'll just tell you a story about how, when I think about being fully present with a dying person, uh, just a story that I will never forget and a picture that remains in my mind. Um, I am a geriatric and an adult nurse practitioner, and a good portion of my career was spent in caring for persons who lived in a nursing home. And those were the best years of my career, let me tell you. I learned more from from those times, from those patients, and from the staff that very skillfully cared for them. And one day, as I was very busy doing my duties and um, applying my tasks around the facility, um, we had several patients who were near the end of their life, and in fact had been enrolled in hospice care. I was busy shuttling about checking someone with chest pain, somebody who had fallen, doing those things, and was called to one of the rooms of one of my patients who was enrolled in hospice and was um, very near, um, probably within just moments of dying. And I stopped short as I entered the room, and I saw five nursing assistants who were standing around the bed very respectfully. And it was just such a picture to me that these nursing assistants who had tenderly cared for this woman, who had been a big part of her family, had listened to her story, and that they knew they didn't need to say anything at all, that they were just with her. And they felt the importance of that moment. And it was just an incredible lesson to me that is not necessarily about my medical skill or my nursing skill, um, that being present and really listening to the stories was probably the best gift that that we could have given to that patient.
2: Okay. <laughs> I'll start. <laughs> uh, in the Old Testament, um, There is a proverb in the book of Proverbs. It says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. And that's the way we would like to imagine our speech and our words of comfort and wisdom falling just in the right place and at the right time and having exactly the right impact. I have a feeling that those who are in the medical profession would say those times don't usually work out quite that perfectly. (coughs) I think there should be another proverb in the Old Testament and it should go something like don't forget to listen and attend before you speak. Uh, It's important to remember that the person who is dying controls the conversation And that we don't have any kind of set speech to make or any responsibility to disgorge the right word at the right time. But first to allow them to know that they are in the presence of someone who cares deeply about them. When I was on the receiving end of this in a time of great crisis, I'll never forget a young Japanese pastor who was here for the semester studying came into my office and he sat right down next to me hip to hip and he said I don't know what to say and then he just sat there and I sat there and it was a healing time so I guess that's the first thing that I always try to remember is that by attending and listening I may know what the right word is to say when it's time to say it. It may not be today, it may be tomorrow. This person may not feel like verbally confronting his or her own mortality today and talking about it. Sometimes you simply say, how are you? Or you look thoughtful and they may say yes I am thinking about some unfinished business I have to attend to with my daughter before I die or they may be saying yes I I'm worrying about whether Duke will make it into the final four this year and you don't know exactly what they will say so uh, it calls for great flexibility and the second point I think I'd like to make is by way of, of preface is that we are all going to die which means There is no extra word for Christians, outside the hope we share for peace and the hope we carry with us at all times for eternal life and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There is no extra word. There is an extra intensity, but not an extra word. And uh, the final remark would be we are in these moments more than a conduit of a message. Before we speak, we have to confront our own anxieties about our own death and discover how deep they really are. And be willing to drop all pretenses of expertise and complete objectivity. And speak if only for a moment heart to heart, from depth to depth. So that said, it is Lent. And we follow closely behind a 33-year-old man who is dying a long and agonizing death. He is surrounded by some people who love him very much and some people who could care less about him. He's plagued by the absence of water and the absence of God. He wants to know where God fits into all this. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' first and last word from the cross is a question. So we speak out of what one scholar has called a chaos narrative. Not every religion has a chaos narrative right at its very center, but we do. Christians I should say do and so the implication for that is um, at the very base that we can say to someone who is dying you are not alone God is with you God goes with you Psalm 139 says even if I make my bed in hell you are there O God And the corollary to that is that we can say to people who sometimes desperately want to hear a promise, I will be with you too. I'll never forget a friend of mine in this same crisis came to me and he said, I will go with you in this as far as I am able. That is the goodness of the promise, the very verb form of promise, which is uh, the equivalent of the gospel. We speak promises. So that's uh, that's the sort of preliminary um, approach I bring to speaking to those who are dying.
3: I think I'll follow. Um, I've had difficulty with the, what does my professional life bring to this because I've had such an interdisciplinary professional life and I'm left with the stories and I think what my professional life has done has allowed me to gather together the um, chaos of stories that I have heard and to try to make some sense of them. So I want to tell just a few and then to try to make some sense of them, one that stays with me even today. And I think I can say this because I don't see him in the audience, The what I consider the very best dean that Duke has ever had. Um, shared with me the story of the death of his aunt he was from maine so he called her his aunt but i called her aunt dot and they sang he told me how the family gathered round and sang and i remembered when saint augustine said that when you sing you pray twice and i have never forgotten the power of both his telling that story the honor of listening to it, and actually being a beneficiary of his aunt. He left me her hat box. He must have known something of my drama. Um, So it was important to know that story, to remember my own. Um, I learned how to talk to a person who dies from my mother at my grandmother's deathbed. There were several people there, one was My uncle, my great uncle, a bishop in the Church of God in Christ, who was praying furiously over her, um, holding her head and shaking it. I was a child, and I was so worried that he would hurt my grandmother. On the other hand, my mother was telling her, what a good mother you have been, how well you have done, how much I appreciated it when you made me that dress, tiny things that she may or may not have been aware of. Uh, She was in a coma. Who knows what she was hearing? I think one of the important things we have to understand is how much of our storytelling at death is about us. I remember, I think it was Malia, the youngest Obama daughter, who at the first inauguration, her father turned to her and said, our president, and said, how did I do? And she had thumbs up. There is nobody who's going to tell us how we did when we speak to the person who has died. They've passed on. But we are constantly evaluating that moment. And the best way I think that we can evaluate it is to collect the stories in our own lives and to see what resonates, what matters. When my mother was dying, she saw every single pastor there was in the hospital. Jewish, Buddhist, Muslim, Christian, just come. She invited them all to her room, and she had one question for them. She said, I just wanna know, God is love, right? And they would say, yes, Sister Weta, God is love. And then then her own pastor said, and he gave that love through the son of, and she said, no, I don't want any intermediaries. I just wanna know, God is love. That was my mother, you know? And she left me with a message of love. So if the stories that I've collected um, in the book I wrote about death and dying, uh, I think my profession has led me to be attentive, to pay attention to the stories, to understand that there is detachment at the moment of dying, that the person who we think is listening may not be hearing exactly what we were saying. And I am very conscious that I am saying this in the spring of Ferguson, Black Lives Matter, And to make us all aware that not all of us have that luxury, and I'm going to call it a luxury, of the slow march to death, where there are people who can gather and say goodbye. The surprise, the quick death, the immediate loss that no one has anticipated during the Vietnam War. um, Those of us who were in the military waited for that knock at the door. Um, There was no time to think about what we would say. So we have to make certain we say it while people are living and to gather together those stories that matter and then to sift them through the chaos, to remember the ones about love, to remember the ones that uplift, to remember the ones that will resonate long after this moment. So I think the chaos of the narrative tells me that both what what I... Um, learn in this contemporary version of my professional life, working with the um, Institute of Medicine and the End of Life Report, that not having a conversation about the priorities people have is a failure that causes harm. So, we have a responsibility in all of our professional lives not to cause harm, to engage that conversation and do the work in sifting through our own lives and our own stories to have the courage to, when we can, have that conversation, but throughout our lives be prepared to notice those moments when we can reward people with stories of our love for them and theirs for us.
4: I should have gone first. <laughs> it was
3: strategic. <laughs> yes,
4: that's what they all said. Um. Well, I'm a pediatric oncologist, and so that's the lens that I view the question through. Um, And like Luke said, I'm also dying. Uh, So I always go to Luke when I need an uplifting positive word (laughs) to encourage me through the day. It's different in some ways um, talking with a child who's dying than with an adult. um, And I've talked to many of both. Um, but it's not entirely different. There are a few things that um, I'm changing a little bit of what I want to say um, so that I don't entirely repeat all the great points that have been made because so much of, of what we need to talk about has been, has been at least introduced. But the things that I'll add are these. Um, so I'm a cancer doctor. And I can tell you that every patient who comes into my clinic, not yet knowing what's wrong with them, who then have to listen to me say that those funny cells that we saw under the microscope are cancer, the moment they hear that word, think, I'm dead. In pediatric oncology, we cure about 70% of all of the patients who come to us with cancer. So a cancer diagnosis by no means points to an inevitable death from cancer. But as soon as they hear the word, they think I'm going to die. The thing that they may not realize is that nothing has really changed about that particular fact. It's always been the case from the moment you were conceived that you were going to die. But I have noticed that cancer acts as a lens to make the reality that death is out there somewhere particularly intense and it does focus in a very special way I think and maybe particularly in our culture because cancer seems to have a place even though more people die from cardiac disease than cancer it seems to have a special place in our collective imagination. So I stay mindful of the reality that almost all of my patients have lived with the thought, I'm a dead person from the moment I said they had cancer. They've been thinking about it. If anyone asks the question, do you think they've thought about death? I'll just, I don't even have to go in the room. I can tell you the answer is yes. And that's important because they will have done some kind of work the entire time that they've had this diagnosis. It's thrown them into a cauldron, where they have to focus on a reality that all of us should be focusing on along the way. Because it is the one thing that we absolutely share, and it does seem rather important that we don't know how many days we have, and that we have to trade each day for something that better be worth this day, because I'm not gonna get the day back. The second thing, when I walk into a room And i'm going to talk to someone about dying that i try to keep in mind is that if i'm talking to you about dying it means that you're not dead and that's an important fact if i'm talking to you about dying it means you're alive and so i'm going to be interested in what it is you want to do with this day of life that you have i may not be able to tell you how many days you're going to have But I couldn't have told you that the day you were born. And so I remember that if I'm talking to you about dying, you're alive. So we can talk about anything you want to talk about, right? But I want to include, if you don't mind, what it is you would like to do with this day of life, and then if you wake up tomorrow, that day of life, and if you wake up the next day, that day of life, and we'll just keep going. So that's the second thing. Um, I think the third thing, and this, this will be the last thing that I'll mention. Anyone who knows me, I, I just go on and on and on. Um, but I think the third thing that I'll say that I keep in mind when I walk into a room to talk to someone about dying, pulls together a lot of um, what you've heard from the other three already. Pulls together the idea that I am a guest in their story, and at the very least, I should be curious about what this part of their story is going to look like from their perspective. I need to listen. Um, The second thing is that if I'm going to talk with them about dying, I need to be prepared to be changed by what I hear if I'm able to get to a place where I can stop talking and just listen. I'll give you an example. Any of us could give you lots of examples. but One example that just came into my mind was um, a girl around 14 years old that I had done a bone marrow transplant on, an experimental bone marrow transplant for a bone cancer that had metastasized to her lungs. And I had her on the bone marrow transplant unit in another hospital in another state. And I'm saying that just in case you're recording it and the HIPAA people are listening.
3: <laughs> <laughs> HIPAA people are always. Listening. HIPAA are always. They're always listening.
4: And um, so I was on the inpatient bone marrow transplant service, and I mean she was she was dying. Um, I had thrown her father off the campus and trespassed him, so that he'd be. Uh, If he came onto campus, we'd arrest him. And the reason is because he was abusive to nurses. He was trying to break into the morphine pump that I had going to help her with her pain. And he was an asshole. So I threw him off campus. And one day I was rounding and walked in the room. um, And she and I had developed a um, a charmingly antagonistic relationship. I said, sweetie, is there anything I can do for you today? Now this girl had been abused by him, physically, verbally, sexually. And part of the reason I would thrown him off is to protect her. But when I asked her, sweetie, Is there anything I can do for you today? Trying to address the issue I talked about at the beginning, which is you're alive today. Tell me how we can fill this day up in a way that means something to you. Because you have some work you can do today, if you want to. She said, I need my daddy. And That is not what I was expecting her to say. But I asked her, are you sure? Are you sure? And she said, yes, I need my daddy. I need to talk with him. I said, okay. And so I untrespassed him, (laughs) let him back on campus, brought him up to the bone marrow transplant unit, told him to behave and let him go in her room and talk. And they talked for two hours. And then he came out and I asked him to leave. I have no idea what they talked about. But when I went in the room afterwards, all she would say is, thank you. So she took that day of life and accomplished something That was critically important to her mental, her spiritual, her physical, her moral, her community, well-being. And this is her story. So I don't need to know what it was she accomplished in that two-hour conversation. But I know that she took advantage of the fact that she was dying, not dead. And did some important work. So I keep her story in mind to keep me from talking too much, not that I'm demonstrating that now, to make me listen, to keep me willing to be changed by what I listen, to be surprised, and to remember that a dying person is, by the very fact that they're dying, alive. And I want to help them take advantage of that.
0: Yeah, thank you to all for all of your comments. One of the things that I find interesting in this in a panel on what to say, <laughs> all of you emphasized what not to say and the posture of listening as we think about engaging those who are dying but not dead and so my my question uh, for you and for those of us that are listening here is what how do you become a Better listener. Um, and what are the variables that may help one become a better listener as we engage those who are dying? And, but also in that, what are there, What are some hindrances to becoming a, a more fruitful listener? If anyone I, could I speak to I, that, Because Carla?
3: In my head is Aretha. Respect. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, she said, sang. Um, I think respect that at the end of life, we have the opportunity to be be a person and not a patient. And once we think of, you know, we can bring all of our professional apparatus to that moment. But if we respect the person, what we say will change. Um, How that person got into whatever situation has brought them to dying. Um, whether it was alcoholism that destroyed the liver. You know, we can um, preach about the sins of, of wine. That would be what it is, right? <laughs> um, we, can, we can chastise so easily. We can say you coulda, shoulda, woulda. But at that moment, respecting that we have a person and not a patient and that that person's need is to be reinforced at the moment of their bodily loss. Um, so that we can place aside our own biases about who are good people, who are not, who did well, who did not do well, and that what they need from us and what we have the opportunity to give in that moment is the kind of respect they may have never received at any other point in their life. Um, What a gift. But what a gift we so easily throw away if we bring that judgment to the moment too. And I know that those of you who work in the medical professions have so many opportunities to see the ways in which we have gone wrong, we have done wrong to our own bodies, bodies that co- people that come into the hospital who have been shot, who were involved in a shooting. We have to put all that aside and remember, this is a person, not a patient. What do I have the opportunity to say and do that will not do more harm but that will alleviate and calm the moment. I actually brought um, props, so play John Brown for me. You know, play some some music, Um, sing, Um, say a prayer. If the words cannot come, if you don't know what to say, there are people far wiser than we who have said it well. There's a whole Bible written of good stuff to say. Um, So I think we can read. I read to my mother, I read her um, two books. One was a Harry Potter book, and the other was a book, um, a more intellectual kind, I can't remember the title now, but I would go back and forth. Um, I didn't have words, but somebody does. And they don't have to be words about that particular event or moment, but we have to be present in whatever ways we can with respect, so respect looms large for me because I know that we don't always die in respectful ways. We don't always die in ways that would command respect. We die many times in ways that make us say, this was an innocent person who died. And I always wondered about the people who are not innocent. Um, So we have so many ways of aggregating people into companies that would um, betray their personhood. We might have the opportunity at death to give that back without judgment. Mm -hmm. What's the cost to us?
0: Thank you. Does anyone else want to reflect on how we can become better listeners,
2: Rick? Most of my experience uh, dealing with people who are dying was in my pastoral ministry. And uh, I I think that our training in seminary, and I say our, when I was uh, being trained sort of disadvantaged us as caregivers because we were taught to be preachers. And uh, I think we felt that we needed to preach in every hospital room. And preaching doesn't always imply listening. I don't know if anybody realizes that. (laughs) Uh, And uh, as long as you could preach, as long as you had a text, and I do believe in texts, That's the third voice in this conversation, always. Uh, You were in a position of safety. I well remember when I was in my very first year as a pastor, confronting death, real death, for the first time, someone I cared about in my parish, and it it was an acidic feeling. It paralyzed me. I didn't know how to handle it. and so one of the ways in which that uh, we become better listeners, I think, is to attend to our own anxieties and come to terms with things about ourselves before we try to um, bring a message to others. I have uh, in thinking about this, today I thought of several verbs, they are always appropriate for people who are talking with those who are dying. And it almost doesn't matter um, the level of intimacy you have shared in your life with this person. Thank, it's always appropriate to thank someone if it's for being a good patient, or for being a good child. We don't say thank you enough. Love, anyone can say I love you. For some people, this is an everyday occurrence. Love you, <clears throat> I love you. We, you know, we, thank you. Reverend. They say I, I do love you. <clears throat> For others, this is um, a rare experience in life. I've talked to a lot of, uh, especially uh, young men, who said when I my father never told me he loved me. You know, so this is um, love. And then the word bless, which I think is the most religious. Word a religious way of speaking to someone imaginable because as you you put your hands on them or raise your hands above them or touch their face, you are, by implication, bringing down the blessing of God upon them. And finally, uh, the verb release. I release you. You're working so hard to stay with it and to stay with us I give you my permission, you are free to go. And it will not be a free fall into nothingness, but a fall into the arms of God. And there's another verb that uh, Ray alluded to, and, and that would be, I think, far more intimate relationships, and that is the word forgive. I forgive you, or I am willing to accept your forgiveness. Um, but those verbs will always lead you in the right direction.
4: Thank you. I think the only thing I would add, um, just even as a follow-up to what Rick just said, is um, <clears throat> <the clears throat> and again, this is from the perspective of a physician, and um, studies have been done on physicians on how long they can remain quiet before they re control of the conversation and start moving with it themselves again. It turns out that the average physician um, can wait 16 seconds <laughs> before they take over the conversation. Um, and so I, I, I think that a simple portion of, um, that's concrete, For improving listening skills is to remember to just shut up that by itself has a stunning effect on the ability of another human being to have a voice Uh, it seems simple and that's why I'm fascinated by the studies of physicians and I'm going to give you a piece of advice Um, if you want to help your doctor, and it's in light of what Rick said about anxiety, about us needing to face our own anxieties, because many physicians, because physicians for the most part are human, haven't dealt with their anxiety over things. And sometimes the best escape from what terrifies you is to get into the heart of it, put on a white coat and take control. And so when you're in the room um, with someone who is your your caregiver, your medical caregiver, um, remember that because one reason they may not be able to be quiet is they're afraid of what you might say. They haven't come to a place where they can hear what you might say. And I will confess that it took me um, years just to learn how to be quiet. My old habit was when a patient relapsed, I would get onto um, our website, our study website that listed all of the available studies, and I would pull off the studies that they were eligible for, and I would have them in my hand so that when I walked into the room, to say, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this. It looks like the cancer is back. I could, as quickly as possible, divert the conversation to, but there are some studies available that I'd like to show you in case you're interested. Now, at one level, I was trying to keep all the options open. But I can promise you, after several years of wondering what is wrong with what is wrong with me? I want to throw up every time I walk into the room. What's going on inside me? I began to realize that the real reason I was bringing all those studies in is because I needed something, anything to talk about besides the reality that they were going to die no matter what I did with these studies. And so when you're talking to your medical caregiver um, and they don't, seem to be able to be quiet, and you have a sense that you need to talk, Uh, you may need to remember this day and the things that are being said, and then help them to be quiet. It'll be a gift to them.
1: As a nurse, I am more patient than my physician colleagues sometimes. (laughs) Um, You know, I I teach a lot of young nurses and physicians and other members of the, the team. And I try, sometimes I don't have a lot of time to teach them, so I try to pack a lot of practical information in a short amount of time. So one thing, and as small as it may sound, but sit down. Um, If you're standing up, that says I'm planning my escape from from your room, from your presence, so sit down. And five minutes will seem more like 30 minutes, even if I only have five minutes. So sit down, Um, lean forward, be engaged, and, um, you know, patients, persons, families, they will tell us. They will give us opportunities, and we can't miss those opportunities. So, an example of that is a young nurse that I worked with recently. Very good, really learning all the technical aspects of her job very, very efficiently, and was caring for a young patient who was critically ill in an intensive care unit. And this patient was pretty much the same age that this nurse was and he was really scared he had a lot of physical symptoms but he was scared and he said something like I'm worried I might I might die that was a gift from that patient regrettably that nurse in her attempt and in her intent I think her intent was completely honorable she she wanted to comfort the patient but she said oh you'll be okay well that patient was not going to be okay and there was no guarantee of that. And I know she, she meant well, but we had to stop and we had to talk about that. And how, what, what would, have, would have been a different way to handle that? And and so asking good questions, when somebody says something, and if, even if it throws you off balance and you think, I have no idea how to respond to that, and that happens. Um, I hear some very interesting things and I think, I don't know what to say to that. and. Either saying, I don't know what to say, that sounds really hard, or asking another question. Getting clarification, and I think asking good questions is one of the best ways to become a better listener.
3: I think we can see that in um, television interviewers who will ask a question, the person will answer it, and then they'll just go right on to their next question without pausing to see what information was in that moment that they could use to expand, and this for me, Luke, is, is the bridge of this conversation. Uh, last week I was with um, colleagues at, um, I have another, another prop, the National Action Conference. The Institute of Medicine has just released our report from my committee on, on Care at the End of Life, Dying in America. This is called Policies and Payment Systems to Improve End-of-Life Care. I don't know a thing about a policy or a payment system and wouldn't recognize one if I saw it. But the senators who began our conversation, Senator um, Susan Collins from Maine, Senator Mark Warner from Virginia, started with stories. Atul Gawande spoke, who you know has just written this extraordinary book, Physician and, and Surgeon, that is about the stories of his fathers dying and his father's life and then the health economist spoke and they all told stories um, I understood that part of the conversation so the bridge that you create for us in bringing a space where we say yes these narratives do matter when we ask a question the answer is going to be important giving a space for a conversation that you had no idea what happened in that two hours except you knew your patient was safe and was getting what she wanted as a person And having a space at an institution like this where our medical care is the tops in the world and our religious care and knowledge is the deepest in the world. To um, excavate those ways in which those of us who are laid to any conversation have an important space to contribute a story that might matter. I think listening to those answers um, and making a space bridge conversation for a story is critical. I'd like to thank you for
0: that. You. We're gonna transition uh, now. That's
3: uh, a hard word, we're, we're talking about death and dying. Right, so.
0: Trans- <laughs> <laughs> not literal transition. I'm an English professor. <laughs> <laughs> to um, their Q&A time. I know if you have questions that you have written down on the paper, please feel free in this moment of transition to put them in those plates. And I'm sure we won't get to all of your questions, but when we're officially finished, feel free to mingle and continue to have conversation with our, our panelists about this uh, topic. So, our first question, and hopefully I will be able to read the handwriting. <laughs> and um, feel free, any, uh, not everyone has to answer. If you feel, if you have an answer, feel free to. What is a cliche you have heard used at the deathbed and what response did it invite from the person dying? I can repeat the question to give more time.
2: (laughs) Most of the cliches I've heard have been To those who are grieving someone who has died and and there there are many but uh, that's a very difficult question Um, I remember someone saying to uh, a little boy whose mother had just died God needed her Mm -hmm. and um, I don't remember what the boy said but I know that the expression on his face said well that's some god if he needs my mother more than I do so it was a uh, really a misdirected um, cliché
4: I would agree that, that almost all the clichés that I've heard have been in the context of grieving after a person has died and I'm not sure I'm not sure why that is one of the reasons maybe because once a person is dead, well, it's hard to deny. Whereas when someone's dying, it's fairly easy to deny and fairly common to deny. And so I hear more diversions than cliches at the bedside of someone who's dying. And I think that's part of the reason why. Um, If there's any measure of denial that opens up plenty of room, if you happen to be in a hospital, for lots of busyness and for people to do lots and lots of things that take up time and prevent conversation. That may be another reason why I haven't heard um, clichés at the bed of a dying person. Um, do you have, any, have you had any encounter with that?
1: I think some of the clichés and, and, or euphemisms are around the, the word death wow. that, I, that I hear. Well, um with, with dying persons and or their families that, they, that they're they passed on or and, and none of this is meant I mean we don't have any ill intent when we use those words but there is no denying the meaning behind the word die or dead or death. And so I really encourage people to be careful with your choice of words. There's no mixing that up with another concept. It is what it is. And so that's one one of those um, so the other thing I hear, and I, I do hear it with families, well, at least. At least, I'm sorry your dad died, but at least you had a dad. You know, and that, that is so unhelpful. And and like the example of the nurse that I, I shared with you, um, that was an opportunity to really, um, it was an empathic opportunity to get down on the level with that patient. And maybe that nurse was uncomfortable thinking I'm a young person and, I have my whole life ahead of me, and it's really uncomfortable for me to imagine that someone my age could die, you know, whatever the reason. But um, being empathic with someone, it actually it fuels connection. Sympathy fuels disconnection, and it takes work. It takes work for us to get down on that level, and it touches perhaps an area of pain in our own lives to be able to, to do that.
3: That's why I think these conversations are so important to give us a chance to deal with what we think about our own deaths, the word death, whether or not we can say the name, um, and whether or not our inabilities will reflect in our ability to care. So, unless we do, you know, we talk a lot about advanced directives, we also need advanced directives in our own vocabularies around death and dying. Um, uh, I know the the literature out there about we should have advanced directives, and I do believe in that, but I also believe our minds change. And I don't want us to be tethered to something that we decided in my bioethics class that I teach when someone's 22, and when they're 42, they might have changed. So we need to make this frequency and ease of conversation around death and dying a matter of everyday life so that it is not such a rarefied, special moment that we find ourselves at a lost or left with a cliche mm-hmm. at the moment of our deaths. I
0: mm-hmm.
4: hope we didn't sequester all the death in the hospital. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. That's, a, that's an important part of our culture, mm. that we don't, we don't get exposed to the reality of someone dying, even though it is the only thing that we absolutely share in common, and that's stunning. It's stunning that the one thing that is guaranteed that every one of us will share as part of our experience is something that we never see.
3: And even though as a college professor, one of the things that I can guarantee is that in the fall or spring semester, students will come to me saying I lost a grandparent. It's, it's a life cycle moment, and they are unable to process that because it's shocking. It's mm-hmm. a surprise to them, but we know the regularity of elder death when a youngster is in college or at a certain age. We could prepare for that better if we didn't make it such a surprise moment, I think. So that it's not just a conversation for the hospital or for the chapel, but it's a conversation that we have at dinner tables and at other, um, we're calling them life cycle events in the Institute of Medicine report. So we make them more ordinary because as you began, We are all
0: dying. -hmm. Another question here um, is, how would you recommend interacting with those whose faith is different from yours or those who have no faith? Do you look for some type of universal theme or something else in the face of their own death?
4: So again, and I, I'm, this, this whole thing is through my lens as a physician, so that's just important to remember, but when I walk into a room to say again, I'm walking, into, I'm walking in as a guest in someone else's story, and um, I, have had, I had an experience with a Muslim father who was in a position because of the way that he was framing um, the events that were happening to his critically ill child who everyone knew was dying. And the child had osteopenia, which means that his bones were very brittle, easy to break because of the history. He was on a ventilator, he was on multiple drugs, keeping his blood pressures up, and yet he was still becoming sicker. We knew he was gonna die. And the medical staff was distressed at the idea of doing cardiopulmonary resuscitation on this child, not only because there was zero chance that it would do anything to meaningfully extend his life. But there was an almost guaranteed chance that we were gonna break all of his ribs and they were just gonna puncture his lungs. And his last experience of life was gonna be having his sternum caved into his mediastinum and his ribs puncturing his lungs, which is not what anyone wanted. So I walked into the room and um, there was music. And I asked him, I'd never met the guy before, And I said, what kind of music is that? He said, it's not music, um, it's chanting. I said, well, what's being chanted? And he said, it's the Quran. So I said, well, what's it saying right now? And he said, he listened to it for, for a bit. And he said, well, it's saying that very often in life, we have something that we want But the will of God may be yes, the will of God may be no. And whether it's yes or no, the will of God is the will of God. Thanks be to God. And I said, you're kidding. (laughs) You are kidding. Tell me more. And he told me from inside his faith, starting with a piece of his scripture, he did the work over the course of an hour long conversation of reframing what faithfulness to God and faithfulness to his son as a Muslim father who had been given this gift of this little boy, he reframed it from inside his worldview starting with that piece of scripture. And I just listened and let him teach me. Um, It did take an hour and it did take some questions. of, but there were questions of genuine curiosity from my perspective. Um, so I don't know, that doesn't answer your question, I just thought it was an interesting story. <laughs> Anyone
0: else?
4: I have one, other, one last question
0: uh, that I'd like to pose here that came my way. And the, the question is, what are healthy ways to expose ourselves to death on Duke's campus?
3: No. Um, I, I do teach a course on bioethics mm-hmm. and narrative, where we do a section on death and dying, um, where students get an opportunity to talk about it, not as a, not not as an academic enterprise, not as a personal story, but an engaging, um, not that they will have a stake, a personal stake in it. And when I hear "healthy ways," I'm sort of reinterpreting that to mean so it's not. Um, negotiating with my body or my vitality at the moment. So I think that there are courses that do that. Mm -hmm. I think that there are opportunities for vigil that do that. Not enough on this campus. Um, Over, we had an event in um, African American Studies on on the Ferguson Symposium Mm -hmm. that you participated in. This was about death. Um, This was healthy because students got the opportunity to hear from senior scholars and professionals about how they might negotiate this danger that they encounter daily. Um, So, but it wasn't marked as a moment where we're having a healthy engagement with a potential death moment. I think marking more moments like that might be an interesting enterprise for Duke.
2: People do die on this campus all the time. Uh, Students die faculty and and I think it's important to attend to those moments Mm -hmm. and uh, for faculty especially to realize that uh, they have in their charge people who perhaps have never experienced death and are in deep shock. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, 20 some years ago uh, a young woman, student, uh, was killed um, in a af- freak accident on one of the school buses, our buses, on her way to take her final exams. And I will never forget what this place was like, this chapel was like, filled with students who were glassy-eyed and in complete shock at what had happened. And... Um, I will never forget the people who stood up and spoke about death, including the young woman's father, who was um, an amazing, amazing person. Uh, That was um, a time when death had come and clustered itself in this magnificent building, and I believe everyone walked out of this place changed. So a part of it is paying attention, not letting things pass uh, in secrecy um, Mm -hmm. in ways that are not uh, noted by the entire community. It's possible though, and it's um, a very educational and healing moment for all the people uh, who participate. You notice how
3: quietly we lower the flag on the Allen Building when something happens, but nobody knows why the flag, for whom the flag has been lowered. You know, more sharing with that, you know, there's been a moment of grief on this campus, someone has died, and yet we treat it almost as if it is a mystery. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm gonna give you all a final word, okay? 30 seconds, maybe, a minute. Um, but I, I want you to um, see if you can answer this question question or how you would, as a way to close our time, because I've heard this phrase or these, this term, good death, and I'm wondering, is there such a thing as a good death? If so, what is it?
4: Are you going to point to us? No, I can, Ray. <laughs> I think there's probably such a thing as bad death Um, and it's 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 difficult for me um, to across the board say that a death is good Mm -hmm. because I would need to know more about what that word means but there are a lot of things that I think we might be able to point to more easily that would certainly make a death bad and those kinds of things are dying in unwanted agony, wishing to confess something and not having the opportunity because of ET ET tubes being put down your throat, um, wishing to say, I love you, wishing to do doable things and not being able to. Those sorts of things, if they weigh on you, can um, do a lot to make a death feel worse than it might be otherwise. And we would just have to talk more about what good would mean to get to anything like a good death. Okay.
1: So I think a good death is definitely in the eye of the beholder. Um, it needs to be clarified. But to follow up with that, um, you know, sometimes we get a choice on how we die. Sometimes we don't. But there's opportunities um, that need to be had all along the way, all along our path in life, Um, conversations that need to be had with people that we love and care about. Uh, Not only does that help us have maybe the death that we would choose to have if we could have that choice, but it's a gift to the people that we leave behind.
3: I think I agree with Ray and Jennifer. I don't cotton to the phrase. Um, I know a lot of it came from the good birth movement and now we've decided we can have the other end of that trajectory, a good death. But I see more in what we can do to pay attention to a patient and a person. I think the word actually means how we feel after someone has died, Um, whether we feel ease and comfort but that will depend on how well we do at the bedside of a person who has rights at that moment, rights in the terms of civil rights, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at that moment of dying as they have had during their death. Um, so I would, I would shy away from a good death, but I would tend more towards not causing harm, more harm.
2: Years ago I had a curmudgeonly colleague, now I'm the curmudgeon, but uh, then this other person was the curmudgeon, and uh, he used to always say, one thing is sure, we all die alone. Mm. And uh, I would try to argue him out of that theologically, but it never worked, he was a Presbyterian. Um, So I would define a good, death as dying in some sort of communion and not going it alone. Um didn't get a chance to talk about that other voice uh, that is in the conversation, the voice of scripture, uh, and that's very important. You don't have to be a pastor to say, would you like for me to read a psalm? because it's a loving and intimate thing to do, to read to someone one-on-one. And uh, right there you have communion. When you hear the psalmist say, I wait on the Lord uh, more than they that watch for the morning. And anyone who has been in a hospital with a loved one who is about to die knows what it is to wait for the morning but in this case, you are waiting with the Lord and for the Lord. So a brief answer for me would be a good death is one that is in which the person is blessed to know and to understand and not all are, of course, that he or she is dying with a friend, a companion, in Christian terms, a fellow member of the body of Christ, but uh, with God, not alone.
0: Let me express my gratitude to all of you who are here for coming out to our bridge panel during your your lunch hour. Uh, Also, I want to say thanks to those who have also co-sponsored this bridge panel, um, the School of Nursing, here at Duke and also met the Medi- Duke Medicines Pastoral Services and the Duke Divinity School. It's also helped this event to happen and so we are grateful for our partnership together. And most of all, let's thank our panelists one more time for their <laughs> insights. Our next bridge panel Um, will be on April 7th during the lunchtime hour. And that particular panel will be focused around the theme of Christian prayer and unity. And so we look forward to having you there or sometime in the fall uh, as we continue this bridge panel series. Feel free to continue the conversation with our panelists and um, have a, a wonderful day. And even if you're dying, Um, as Ray said, know that you are fully alive. So I hope you have um, a a wonderful day that's full of life and communion. Take care. See you next time.